All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. The rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, as we uh, continue and, and even ascend in our time of worship. Since worship doesn't center around man, around ourselves, but around God, we look to his word. And that's what we're doing here in Romans 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere within reach. Definitely grab one. You might have to look around a little bit and turn to Romans, almost the end of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. We're in a verse Bible, verse study, excuse me, through this excellent book. And uh, welcome to all of you as you're turning there. So good to have you. Uh, those of you online, tuning in as well, great to have all of you join us for worship. Romans chapter 6, again, we're in a verse-by-verse study through the book, and whatever the next kind of chunk of verses are, that's what we study. Romans chapter 6, we're in part 2 uh, of our study from last week, the believer's response to being dead to sin, to having died to sin here in verses 12 to 14. Well, it was four years ago uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and a mom uh, received a, a phone call that no parent ever wants to receive. Uh, on the other line was a hospital. They said, uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a worker here at the ER of this hospital here in Louisville, and uh, you need to come quickly. It's your daughter, and she's here in the ER. The mom begged the ER worker for, for some answers. Is, is she okay? Is she alive? And... Not much info was given. The mom's name is Carrie. This happened. She arrived at the ER, and her 22-year-old daughter uh, lay there on the hospital bed in the ER, and she wasn't going to make it. A total uh, tragedy, sorrow upon sorrow. And so the dear mom sat at the bedside of her daughter and held her hand and brushed her hair and said goodbye, and, and tragically, her daughter did pass away within a few days. Uh, unspeakable pain, um, a jarring anguish, a sorrow that never, never quite goes away in this life. Uh, of course, in heaven, thankfully, this will never happen again, but in the meantime, uh, this type of a situation is too common. And un- unspeakable pain. However, out of this great pain and death also came great healing and life. Uh, Carrie's daughter was, uh, became, was, became an organ donor. And she had several, if not all, of her organs functioning uh, in a very healthy manner at the time. There was a, a 39-year-old man, a, a carpenter and a father, who was dying and was waiting for a kidney. There was a 13-year-old girl, also dying, uh, who was in need of a liver. 
And there was a 56-year-old gentleman dying who needed a kidney and a pancreas. And so from this great tragedy, this dear 22-year-old young woman, out of her death came life. All three of them received the healthy organs they needed, and their lives were, their lives were saved by one individual. In an interview, the, the daughter's mom talked about how special it was and the sorrow that though her daughter passed, uh, there's a sense in which her daughter lived on uh, in, her, in the lives of those she saved and that those three people could now live a new life. Uh, these three individuals who were headed to the grave uh, and had no hope uh, now could not just exist but go on with their new organs and live life. They could live, they could move, they could get out of the hospital, they could laugh, they could continue and live a new life. This is sort of a picture, spiritually, of what absolutely happens to every single person who gives their life to Jesus Christ and who bows the knee in faith to the Son of God. When, when a human being, when we realize our greatest need, when we come to our senses, that point that every human being needs to come to, and we realize, you know what, I, I'm not all that I thought I was. I'm not as invincible physically or spiritually that I thought I was. That the fact of the matter is, in an unflattering way, as, as God tells me in his word, that I have sinned. And as we read in Luke 18, 9 to 14, of the, the tax collector who's hammering on himself and realizing, God be merciful to me, the sinner. We realize our greatest need is to be reconciled to God, have our sins forgiven, and to be given new life and eternal life. That by simple, childlike faith, trust in God, Jesus does a great work in us. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned. It doesn't matter your upbringing, your background, what you know, what, what happened to you. It just matters simple faith in Christ. We receive our greatest need, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, guarantee of heaven, wiping away our sin, union with Christ. But as we've been studying in Romans chapter 6, that it doesn't stop there. That we receive brand new spiritual life such that our lives change. No, we don't become perfect. Yes, we absolutely are radically changed. From spiritual death to spiritual life. From darkness to light. From being dead to God and alive to sin to being dead to sin and alive to God. Those three recipients of the organ donor, when it came time for their surgery, they had to realize something very important. You've realized this if you've had surgery, that this isn't a work that they could perform on themselves, that they trusted in whoever the surgeon was, and they put faith in this individual, 
and trusted that these organs were healthy. And they, they just, in an act of surrender, just laid down on the operating table. And then someone else did the work on them. And when they woke up, they had new life. New life where they wouldn't just continue to sit in a hospital. Yes, it would be a little bit of a battle, and then they would have to do maybe some uh, PT and recovery and some healing, but they, one day they'd be able to get out of that hospital, get out of the hospital bed, and go out into the world and breathe air and walk around with their feet and laugh and live and eat and live a new life through the act of one individual through their death. And so it is through one individual, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, through his unfathomable love for us, despite the fact that we have sinned against him, and we have not lived up to his good and his righteous moral will for us, that he laid down his life 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross, and he was treated like a shameful criminal where all of our sins of those who would go to heaven and all of the ways that we have disobeyed God, all who would put faith in him were laid upon Jesus Christ there, and God judged him as if he was judging us and took our sins and put them on him. And Christ suffered and he died. That he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he died a death and was put in the tomb and was buried. And three days later, he walked out of that tomb bodily and busted out of the grave physically to show that he was and is God and he is sinless and was sinless and that his death serves as a satisfactory offering in our place that all who is simply in an act of surrender like laying down on an OR, you don't do anything. You just fall on the table and go to sleep. That through surrendered faith in Jesus Christ, his life, his substitutionary atoning death, his resurrection, that we are saved. And through the act of one individual and their work, we have new life. Just like this tragedy of this poor mother who had to go through this and her daughter who died, new life was given to several individuals. And they weren't the same. They weren't sickly as they were before. They weren't walking around dying as they were before. They were raised up to new life, as it were. And Romans 6 is telling us this fascinating thing. That all who put faith in Christ, as if it isn't enough, beloved, to be forgiven of all the things we have and yet will do, sins, as if that wasn't enough, as if it wasn't enough to know that we're right with God, as if it wasn't enough to know that we'll go to heaven one day, where there'll be no such thing as death and funerals and sadness and sorrow and decay. As if that isn't enough. In this life, God is saying to us in Romans chapter 6, there's this thing, this other work of grace and newness that God does in us called sanctification. Sanctification. It's just, a, if you're unfamiliar, it's a theological term that means God not only forgives those who put faith in Christ, he transforms those who put faith in Christ. Not because we're so great, uh, not because we've all of a sudden become 
perfect people and we're better than everyone else? Not at all. But because the grace of God hits us. And we have new spiritual life like those three individuals who were dying got new organs and their life was new. Romans 6 teaches us that all whom God rescues from the penalty of sin through faith in Jesus are also rescued from the power of sin through faith in Jesus. And that's the issue in Romans 6. Can someone be hit by the power of the grace of God and not change? Paul's saying, no way. That God is that good. Salvation is that real. And the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who parachutes into the heart of the believer the moment of saving faith, he's that active. He's that, he's that there and dwelling and working. No, we don't become perfect, right? Romans 7, Paul's going to talk a lot about that. Even in these verses this morning, in verses 12 to 14, there is this battle with sin. But like those individuals who receive their kidneys and their pancreas and liver and whatever else and walked out of the hospital new, far more and even more physically, spiritually I should say, and morally, we walk in newness of life. And that's what Romans 6 is saying. All who have been saved are sanctified. Everyone whom God has justified, he will sanctify. You cannot receive the power of the gospel to forgive and cleanse of sin and remain unchanged in our sin. God is that good. This is the message of Romans 6. Follow along as I read. I'll start in verse 8 and read to verse 14. God's word says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And remember this, when it's talking about death and life, crucifixion and resurrection in Romans 6, the context is spiritual change. It's not talking about our physical resurrection. That's other passages like John 5, Roman, uh, Revelation 20, Revelation 21. That's later. Here the issue is change in this life. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves, those of us who have put faith in Christ, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For, verse 14, sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Amen. So, up until this point in Romans, if you haven't been with us or just by way of reminder, Again, two things Romans has been saying up until this point. The whole human race really needs Christ. We, though God is a good and perfect and the only righteous God, 
we don't naturally want to come under his rule. We want to come under our own. The God standard is the perfect beauty of holiness for us. We don't naturally walk in that. We, we go in another direction. Amen. However, Romans 3 turns the corner, and we learned that where our need is, that God meets it through the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so here in Romans 6 is, so what about all of this? We change. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6, just by way of reminder and context. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Some people were saying, well, if you tell people that they can just be saved by faith alone, not their works, they'll, they'll, they'll just abuse that and say, great, we can keep sinning and no big deal, I'm forgiven. Paul says, verse 2, may it never be, no way. Why, Paul? Verse 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So this is about walking in newness of life, consequent of being saved. Sanctification is the issue here. And last week to introduce this little mini-series in verse 12 to 14, we observed seven points, seven truths about sanctification. I'll just say them really quick. Sanctification can't begin until regeneration occurs. Sanctification is not not an instantaneous event. It's progressive. Third, sanctification is not a work we do to earn right standing with God or entrance into heaven. That's God's grace, regeneration, and forgiveness. Fourth, sanctification is not a maybe in the life of the believer. It is certain. Verses 1 to 11 is showing us that. Fifth, sanctification is not effortless. It requires effort. It's a work. Justification, regeneration are not works. Sanctification requires work, faith and work. Six, sanctification is not easy. It's a battle. We'll see this here. Why is it a battle if I'm dead to sin? Because sin is not dead to me. And this is how God has ordained that things would proceed. And then seventh, sanctification is lifelong. We don't arrive at this. Even if we were to live 10,000 years, We would never arrive in being perfect, perfectly Christ-like. That's the next life when we do away with this body. So from verse 12 to 14, uh, we're seeing five responses every believer has to having died to sin. I think last week I might have said six. As I looked at this a little carefully, kind of consolidated a little bit. Five responses we'll see in verse 12 to 14 if you're taking notes. Five responses every believer has to having died to sin. So the text is now saying, okay, those of you, you, you've saved, you've come to your senses, you've put faith in Christ, you have new spiritual life, it's time to get up and out from the operating table, out from the hospital as it were, like someone who's received new organs, it won't always be easy, it'll be a battle at times, but you have new life. Here we go. And just a couple, these first couple we uh, hit last week, I'll just review them briefly. Number one, the first response we have is this motive, the motive that we keep, the motive we must keep in the Christian life. In verse 12, Paul says, look there, he says, therefore, do not let sin reign. Therefore, meaning he's 
Whatever he seated there for, he's lassoing everything that was before. Bottom line, he's saying, because God has deluged you and Christ has flooded you with this love, you need now to fight sin, speaking to believers. Because Christ has so lavished us with his grace, we proceed. So he's saying, you need to remember that. This is the motive we have in the Christian life as we battle sin, namely the love of God for us in Christ and in the cross. We must always keep that motive. Second, we saw, there are sin's desires we must disobey. The second thing we remember, sin's desires we must disobey. This is also in verse 12. Look there. Therefore, do not let sin reign. There is a command. These are some of the first commands we've seen in the entire book of Romans. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. So we saw that sin wants to rule or reign over you. The Greek word translated reign, it means to lord over as a king. To reign over you as a a tyrannical totalitarian. That's what sin wants to do in us. And we have to be honest. And notice where it does its work. Verse 12, do not let sin reign where, Paul? In your mortal body. Mortal body just refers to our, our physical being that is decaying, it's heading to death. So sin wants to do a work in us and it attacks us inside of us. So much of the Christian life, therefore, is a battle against ourselves. And a lot of people miss that about the Christian life. They just think, well, it's just a battle against, you know, all the satanic forces outside of me. There is that. There's part of that. But right here, what Paul is hitting, the first thing he's telling us after five and a half chapters of gospel is fight yourself. Sin wants to do its work and and dominate you like a totalitarian inside of you. This is part of the Christian life. And we're self-righteous. If we say, no, we don't, that's not me. I don't need to do that. I've arrived. This is why Jesus went after the Pharisees. They didn't have Romans 6 and their understanding of true spiritual life as a believer in the true God. And they weren't believers, though they thought they were. They had zero understanding of Romans 6 or Romans 5. And so sin, verse 12, wants you to obey its lusts. End of verse 12. Sin has desires. They're strong desires. They want to lord it over you like a king, like a totalitarian. Paul says you're going to have to fight this. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to not let sin do things as it presents desires to you. So number three, here's where we left off. Sin's service we must refuse. Sin's service we must refuse, and the alternative service we must render. There's a lot going on in 13, hence kind of a big point here. Sin's service we must refuse, and the alternative service we must render. Sin's service we must refuse, and the alternative service we must render, found in verse 13. 
So sin is like a, like a totalitarian. It has desires that will present to you. It will never say, hey, these are bad. Don't do this. It will trick and deceive and call evil good, call filth beauty, call unrighteousness righteous, call hate love. That's what sin will do. It's deceptive. That's its DNA. And so Paul is saying, okay, these desires come at you. Don't let them reign like the totalitarian that they want to. And further, number three, sin service we must refuse and the service we must alternatively render. Look at verse 13. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as righteousness of, unrighteous, of, of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. A lot going on here. So there are things we are to avoid. Do not go on presenting your members. There is a negative. There must be a negative in, in the Christian life. Sometimes people like to say, well, I don't, I don't want to talk about the things I shouldn't do, just the things I should. There's a negative here. There's, a thing, there's things we are not to do, like raising children. You're on a hike. Don't walk near the edge of that cliff and so on. The Christian who thinks he has grown past this, he's... He's older, he's experienced, he doesn't really need to think about dangers, he's deceiving himself, he's proud. Even the seasoned Apostle Paul here talks about, even in his own life, staying away from things, never thinks he's arrived. There are dangers, things we need to stay away from in the Christian life. There is sin's service we must refuse. Notice in verse 13, the Greek word translated present. Do not go on presenting. The Greek word translated present, presenting, it's an interesting word in, in ancient Greek. It has the idea of to offer oneself in service to another. It means to kind of to show up for duty, for respectful, obedient duty, is the idea of the word present. It was used in ancient times to describe respectful waiting upon a superior, serving a superior. So the idea here is that when we sin and thought, whatever it might be, we're offering ourselves up in service to sin, whether it's our imagination, our minds, our thoughts, our intentions, or going outward. We are showing up for duty and offering ourselves in respectful service as if sin was a superior. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Every time we sin, we're becoming sin's servant, if even for a moment. Verse 13, he says, do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Members, it refers to the faculties in which we live. We'll talk about that in a minute. As instruments of unrighteousness, that word translated instruments was used to describe weapons of war. You are in a war if you're a Christian. Peter talks about this, 1 Peter 2, 11, 12. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. A war against yourself. And again, the person who doesn't want to really talk, think about that, or have that component in their Christian life is going to become an arrogant, self-righteous, blinded person very quickly. You can read in Matthew 23 what Jesus had to say about this. You're in a war. 
It's a war for our own humility and holiness and Christ-likeness. When you talk about a war, wait till we get to Romans 7, 14 to 25, where this seasoned man, this wise man, the apostle of grace, talks about the war against himself. So let's think about this, because Paul says, your members, okay, these are your faculties. And I think we can apply what Paul says here and consider about five different faculties, at least five, that were not to offer under sin's tutelage, but the war for godliness. Five or so, you could probably add to this. The mind, the eyes, the ears, the mouth, and hands and feet. You could probably put those in one. The mind, the eyes, the ears, the mouth, hands and feet. Why are we doing this? Paul says, do not present your members your faculties is the idea of yourself in which you live. Which members? All of them. So we can start with the mind. And I think we can do this because in, later in Romans 12, 1-2, Paul, when he, when he starts talking in greater detail about living a godly life, he starts with the mind, renewing your mind. The late R.C. Sproul had his ministry, you, probably a lot of you still listen to his stuff, renewing your mind from Ligonier Ministries, an excellent, helpful ministry. Paul starts with with the mind. Renew your mind. First, our minds are to not be allowed to serve sin and are to be presented to serve God. Beloved, there's a sense in which the mind is the most dangerous faculty. It's the most dangerous part of your body, the mind. Everything starts there. The mind is a control center. The thoughts, when we talk about mind, thoughts, motivations, imagination, intention, musings, meditation. It's the soil in which the seeds of either unrighteousness or righteousness are planted and then grow and move out into your life, causing misery and sin or peace and obedience. This is where Christ does his foundational work of sanctification and the heart and the mind. Again, Jesus with the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 25. He, he grabs the Pharisees, as it were, and says, you guys only focus on scrubbing the outward of the cup. The outside of the dish. You hypocrites, he says, You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Outside, they had it cleaned up. Their mind was, was just a playground of sin. Full of murdering others. Full of self-exaltation in their mind. Self-worship, no fear of God. The late James Boyce writes, quote, what? you do with your mind will determine a great deal of what you will become as a Christian. This is why there's lots of content in the Bible because it's, it's thought, it's meditation, it's hitting us here that would go out from here. And beloved, for some of us, our mind, it, it's, it's like romper room and a playground of sin. 
we do things like win imaginary arguments against people in our minds. We are uncharitable to people in our minds. We build cases for ourselves and against others in our minds, where lo and behold, we always come out better than others in our minds. We prove to ourselves in our minds how we are above others, how we are right and others are wrong, how I am so righteous and it's that or them or whoever is unrighteous, letting our minds go into judge, jury, executioner against people, even those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is saying, don't do that. Knock it off. Stop offering your minds up in service to sin's totalitarian rule. Other things we do with our minds. But the great news is, as a believer, we're dead to sin. And we must not do that any longer. We've got to get control here. And have the water of the Spirit gush through and purge our minds. And have, have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16 talks about. A tender-hearted mind that is gracious. What, what do you allow to hang out in your mind? What if God played a movie of our minds this past week and just, instead of doing church this morning, we're just going to watch a movie of our minds. Philippians 4.8, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, what am I to think about? What's God's will for my life? Whatever is true, right, honorable, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Dwell means meditate on. Let them occupy your imagination, intention, motivation, musings. And then he says in verse 9, the peace of God will be with you. Thoughts of gratitude towards God and people. This, this is basic. Thoughts of kindness. Thoughts of suspecting myself instead of others. Thoughts of getting the log out of my own eye and favoring others. Thoughts of holiness. Thoughts of prayer. By the way, this is why reason number 4,589 4, billion gazillion, why we need to memorize scripture. That's not just for little kids. That's for people who aren't Jesus. And actually, Jesus in his earthly life memorized scripture too. If you ever have thoughts that aren't honoring to God, then I would commend to you, like I need to do, because I struggle with this too, memorizing scripture and just lots of it. It's a helpful way. Next faculty, the eyes. The eyes are in large part the influencer of the heart, aren't they? Like they're, they're the receiver of seeds. just depends what kind of seed they are. And it's an interesting thing. If you plant thorn seeds in your garden, kale doesn't grow. Thorns do. And so it is. If we allow thorns 
spiritual, moral thorn, thornies, stuff coming through our eyes, guess what's going to influence our heart and start to grow in our heart? What we allow our eyes to gaze upon can sway our hearts. And this is true, beloved, whether we're 8 or 80. Even, even wise Job. In the Bible, it says Job was the godliest dude in the East. And Job said, how did he get that way? One way was because he said, I made a covenant with my eyes. I'm going to be super careful what I'm looking at. And we shouldn't think, well, this teaching is mostly for brand new believers or, you know, young people. It is. However, Paul's speaking to adults here in the Church of Rome. People with gray hair. Our eyes are not to be in service to sin, but offered up to God. Looking at scripture. Looking for ways to encourage people. Looking for ways to bless others. Looking at things that are honoring to the holiness and the beauty and the purity of Jesus Christ. Third faculty, the ears. The ears. The ears are like a garden bed, aren't they? Similar to the eyes. Where, I mean, whatever comes in, the soil will just grow. Stuff's always coming in our ears. You can't prevent stuff coming in, but we can what it is. And whatever comes in will grow and will influence. What do we allow to enter our ears? What, what kind of things do we entertain from the world? things for which Christ had to die. Or, or even like gossip and slander. Well, I'm just being a good friend, a good spouse, and I'm just, I'm just listening to them. No, you're not, friend. You're not at all. Because Proverbs 26.20 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. Imagine a person walking around with a flamethrower. A buddy of mine texted me a picture of him not long ago with a flamethrower in his backyard. He got one. I'm not against flamethrowers. However, imagine walking around in your house with a flamethrower. What are you doing? I'm just spraying some fire around the kitchen, on, on the couch, and the hutch, stuff like that. And then imagine walking around the forest here like early August, about like August 10th, here in the Bridger Teton National Forest, and just... That'd be bad. Just going to spray some fire around. Just like we would never want to allow fire to be sprayed in light of this proverb around someone's house, physically speaking, or a dry forest, we need to be careful about allowing gossip and slander in our ears. Now, you're not being a good friend. We'd have to be careful about what we allow to enter our ears. We want a lot of beauty and purity and scripture and biblical teaching to enter our ears. Because what comes in is going to spread and it's going to influence you. Fourth faculty, the mouth. The mouth. So much stuff in scripture about the mouth. And as James says, in James chapter 3, you know, just like a little rudder on a ship can just steer a big ship, so our mouths can have so much influence for bad or for good. 
Our mouths are never to be allowed to do sin's bidding. They're, they're, they're to be presented to God for service. They're always doing one of two things. And again, our mouths are like seed spreading. The eyes and the ears are like seed coming in. The mind, the mouths are like taking that and spreading the seed now. What kind of seed are we spreading with our mouths? It's just a matter of what kind of seed, holiness and humility or ungodliness? Promoting unity or division? Promoting gratitude or aggression? Angst. Which one are we doing? Love for God and others are tearing down. I wonder what it might be like if God followed us around for a week or so with an audio recorder as we talk to people, as we talk to others, as we maybe talk to a roommate or a spouse or that friend that won't really confront us or let our guard down a little bit, and then if we just put that recorder up and just listen to it. Uh, if God played that, what, what would that be like? Perhaps like me at times, you've had to pray David's helpful prayer in Psalm 141. Remember what he prays there? Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. I've had to pray that. Maybe you have to pray that sometimes. If God interviewed the 10 people who hear your words most, how would they answer questions like, so what do you remember about this person's words? What are they like? What are they often speaking about? What are just some things that you remember? What kind of trail are our words leaving? Ephesians 4.29 is just a helpful one. I had to memorize this early on in my Christian life because I was so foul on the things that I said. Let no unwholesome word, that Greek word for unwholesome, it was used to describe rotting, rotting food, decaying, moldy, nasty, moldy fruit. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. That word edification means to like put a support on people to encourage them. But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve, the next verse says, the Holy Spirit by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. And that's, that's crazy to think how our words can grieve God. There's no place for unwholesome speech for a believer, ever. Not just like the easy, basic stuff, you know, cursing or whatever, but just stuff that kind of tears down a little bit. Again, slander, hate, no place for it. Zero. Mature believers will use their mouths to speak scripture, to express care for people, to make sincere inquiry into how people are doing, to build each other up, to pray words for people, and the like. What kind of words do you plant? Beloved, and I include me in this, there is zero, zero place in the Christian life for unwholesome words of any kind. Zero. 
We must repent of this if we are in this in any way, shape, or form, notwithstanding how acceptable it is in culture, and even in some Christian cultures, there is zero place. We are to be a godly, humble, kind, honorable, and holy people with our words. It is unacceptable for a Christian to be a slanderer, to be a gossip, to be an unkind and hateful, terror-down type of person. Zero place. I, I don't care anything what culture says, or even wicked Christian culture. The Bible is just so crystal clear on this. And by God's grace, I need to grow in this area too. Fifth faculty, the hands and the feet together, moving out then. The hands and the feet, picture moving out, actively doing things, going places. Speaking, living. Christian life is pictured as a walk. Where do we go? What do we set our hands to? Where do our feet take us? Our hands and our feet are given to us by God for upbuilding, for blessing, for kindness, for encouragement to one another in the Christian life, for godly usefulness. What do we allow ourselves to get involved with? Even endeavors that we take upon ourselves in life, are these going to help us present ourselves to God as servants or will they hinder that, the hands and the feet? We might have to make hard decisions and say, I might need to shed some things. That life is so short, I need to not bring those upon my hands and feet. Go there with my hands and my feet, even though it might be a, a good thing. Hebrews 12 says, lay aside hindrances and encumbrances and run the race focused on Christ. Paul in Ephesians 4.1 says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So, so much more we could say here. You could add to this the mind, the ears, the eyes, the mouth, the hands and the feet. Jesus says, in the Sermon on the Mount, also in Matthew 18, he says, if any of these faculties are susceptible to sin, he says, get a big machete, get a, get a still chainsaw, and saw it off. And he doesn't say, put it on the bedstand for further use. He says, the Greek word he says, just like, chuck it. Throw it from home plate out like a home run throw. So new life in Christ, beloved, takes effort to refuse to offer up our thinking, our imagination, our speaking, our eyes, ears, mouth, words, our doings, refusing to offer them up in service to sin's tyranny. And this will be subtle because sin is deceitful, and it will be constant because sin is alive. Fourth, fourth, so what about being made alive in God as a believer? We're to think about, fourth, a living ownership, our new living ownership. 
And number four, if, if you're a believer now, we think we have a new living ownership. What's that talking about? Right in the middle of verse 13, he says, present yourselves to God. And then he starts talking about your members and all that. But first, present yourselves to God. Just very briefly, before we think about our faculties doing sin service, we need to think about a holistic, non-compartmentalized approach to the Christian life. I am for God. All of me. All the time, everywhere. I am to present myself to God. Because Jesus didn't just like die for my Sunday morning for two hours and my feet for three hours. He died for all of me. He paid the price for me. And so Paul is, in fact, saying, please don't compartmentalize your life. All of us is for God. Present yourselves to God. And then number five and last here, just this massive verse in verse 14. This is a Mount Everest verse. The sixth, fifth response every believer is to have in light of having died to sin, remember the grace we're under. Verse 14, as you fight yourself and fight against sin, remember the grace you are under. Look at verse 14. For, reminder, an explanation of all this. Why are we fighting? For, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Why is this verse here? I like to ask that of verses in the Bible. God is not random. He's not capricious. Why do you put this verse here? Because he knows that some people will say and think, as they were to Paul and will today, well, I'm under grace so I, I don't really need to think about fighting my sin. I don't really need to think about, you know, battling certain things in my life. I can just let go, let God. I, I don't need to put any effort into growing. It'll just kind of happen. I'm under grace. It's not really a big deal if I sin. I'm under grace. And Paul's saying, yes, if you're saved, you are under grace. But you're under grace so that you would no longer Sin. Do you see the correlation? It's connected to the first part, verse 13, by fighting, presenting. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, under grace. And, and let's just see law on this statement, you're not under law. For those who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, the fact that you're not under law, th there's a book of theology in that statement. The law means God's moral code, right? Every good nation that cares for its citizen, has laws to protect them, so does God to protect us. His laws expressed in part in the Ten Commandments, for example, summarized where Jesus says, like here's two ways to summarize God's moral law. Love God perfectly with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he sums it up again in Matthew 5.48, be as perfect as God. And that's the pathway to getting to heaven by your works. If you can do that, you can get to heaven by your works, but nobody can. Everybody is under God's law because God is the only God. God is the creator. This is his universe, and so we're all under God. We're all under his law, meaning obligated to it. However, nobody can keep it. 
right? This is why Christ came. Nobody can keep it. Galatians 2, Paul says much earlier, by the works of the law, in other words, by trying to obey the law, no flesh, no human will be justified or declared righteous, good enough to get into heaven. And so you and I are going to be able to ride a rusty tricycle backwards from the bottom of the tram to the top through eight feet of powder before we're going to be able to obey enough God's law to be a good person in his sight. And so we need Jesus. This is why he came. Because otherwise we're crushed under the law. The law can tell you what to do, but it cannot save you. It cannot give you the ability to obey it. Just like the law in this country, pay taxes. That law can't help us pay taxes. It tells us to pay taxes. It can't help you do it. God's law can't help you do it. And so until we bow the knee to faith in Jesus Christ, we're under the crushing weight of that law. Like someone who lays down to do bench press and puts a thousand pounds on each side, manages to get it off the rack, and then it just crushes him on his sternum. That's how we are until we give our life to Christ. We're crushed by the law's requirements. However, Jesus came to be crushed under the law for us, didn't he? And he was crushed on Calvary's cross. He obeyed the law perfectly, like no one else ever has or could have, and then offered himself to be crushed in our place for us by the requirements of the law, so that those who put themselves by faith on the operating table and trust in him, the law and the weight of it is lifted. And we enter into this realm where we're under grace. And so that's why sin shall not be master over you. The Greek word master means to lord over as a slave owner. It shall not be. How can we, in other words, can a person be taken out of that crushing requirement, put under God's grace and remain unchanged? No. No, you can't. When you're removed from under the law's crushing requirements, you're made dead to sin. And so you'll walk in newness of life. There's so much more we can and should say about this verse. But isn't God so good to take us out from under the crushing weight of the law, unite us to Christ, and give us not just a couple of new spiritual organs, but give us total new spiritual life. Hasn't God been so good to you to do this? Hasn't God been so kind to us to crush Christ instead of us so that we could walk in newness of life? In light of the horrific death Christ died for us, booting the gates of heaven open for us, it would be inappropriate to take that verse and to have this idea and say, well, I'm under grace now, so I can sin. It's no big deal. I can speak in an unhelpful way. I can think in an unhelpful way. Uh, I, I can be sexually deviant. I can leave my spouse. I'm under grace. It would be so inappropriate to do that because God has been so good to us. And so Paul is putting us in the place, the only place, where a soul can get true liftoff for godliness 
to know we're not under the crushing weight of the law, but under grace. And this is what the table reminds us of that we celebrate once a month. The table is a very helpful visual. You don't get saved by eating the cracker or drinking the juice. Nevertheless, it's so important. It's commanded. Jesus commanded us to practice this as a visual. And, and I think he wants us to like drink and eat of it to, to show like the unity. I'm all there. I'm totally united, all of me, taking Christ in, being united to him. It's a visual of being taken out from under the crushing weight of the law and putting in union with Christ in the realm of grace. That how does that happen? What the bread and the cup represent. The bread representing the body of Jesus, that he was a real guy, God and man. And he died and he suffered. And there's a cost to rescue us from not only the penalty, but the power of sin, his body, and the cup representing his, his precious blood. His blood that it was in a body that never sinned and that always offered himself up into perfect service to God the Father. And so we'll take that in a minute. But before we do, just, just some reminders from Scripture, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and following. They give kind of a couple warnings. They say, you know, uh, Paul says there, if you're a believer and if, you're, if you have some unconfessed, unrepented of sin, maybe uh, something against another person, uh, maybe something that you've been getting away with among people, but God sees it and you know it's something else and you're not willing to confess that to God, then don't partake, because you would be blaspheming the idea of being under grace. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can just confess it, knowing that Jesus died. And if you've yet to, to be saved and to give your life to Jesus Christ, the scriptures also teach just don't partake, because this is for people who are going to heaven and who have been brought out from under the law and into grace. However, that too can be changed. Romans 10.13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And you can just call on the name of the Lord and be saved and then come partake. We'll have the musicians come up uh, for a little bit here and just look to Jesus. Look to the Savior. Look to a God who says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Look to the Lord who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to him. Come to him in your hearts by faith and trust for new life, or for renewal. And then when you're ready, come grab the bread and the cup and we'll take it together.